welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. It's an interesting time that we face these days with the coronavirus and COVID-19. Um, we know that many folks are are operating under different circumstances and those in our healthcare community are under you know, constant stress from from working around the clock to try to try to treat those that are impacted by it. Um, so it's difficult to say I want to celebrate our hundredth episode here on the Charlotte Angel Connection, but to a certain extent I still want to celebrate the hundredth episode of our podcast series. So we started this way back when and um, we've we've now interviewed over a hundred individual or done over a hundred podcasts with individuals, investors, and those that support the entrepreneurial community. And you know, every now and again, you run into an entrepreneur that um, that really gets you up and running. And I met Tana Green. Um, Todd Bulow introduced me to her not too long ago, and and had a phone conversation. Went up and did my podcast interview for or with her and. Um, saw her operation and what she's doing and, you know, had a, a fantastic conversation with her. And, you know, I think, you know, delivering this podcast at this point in time is a fantastic opportunity because her new um, her new company, My Work Choice, fits right there um, as far as allowing companies to utilize a mobile workforce um, so or a mobile and flexible workforce. So, um, without a whole lot more to say, I mean, Tana's, um, very well known in the Charlotte marketplace. Um, her story is a super powerful story and what she's been able to accomplish through everything is, you know, one of those things that kind of gets you up and running in the, um, in the morning. So really excited about letting this one go. Um, introducing you to my workforce CEO and co-founder Tana Green and, you know, again, celebrating 100 episodes here on the Charlotte Angel Connection. We've got some some fun things we'll release later this year that maybe we planned on releasing now. But at this point in time, we just want to introduce you to another phenomenal CEO um, and let her tell her story. So thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Charlotte Angel Connection. So welcome to the podcast today, Tana. It's great to have you um, join us here on the Charlotte Angel Connection. I'm just honored to be here. Thank you. So thanks so much. Um, so as we were talking about earlier, and as my um, as my audience all knows, we always like to start off with a softball question. Um, I've seen you speak on YouTube and a couple other things, so something tells me you don't need a softball question. Um, but I'm a, um, I'm a man of habit, so the softball is... Can you give us a two to three minute spill of who Tana Green is? I would say first and foremost, I'm a seeker on steroids. <laughs> uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. And my entire reason for being is to ignite joy. That's what I figured out is my purpose. Um, that's interesting. Um, how long did it take you to figure that out? Oh my gosh, that journey's been a long time. <laughs> I wish I could say it's as simple as read a book and you'll figure it out or take a test and you'll figure it out. But I think it's a combination of many years' journey and a lot of coaches. And plus, it's just, first of all, you got to be interested to know what is my purpose. 
and how do I connect that to what I do every day? And I think for me, it really came about in probably 2006 was the beginning of my journey. So it's been a long journey. It's been fun. I'm continuing to learn. I don't think you ever hit the ultimate, I know it now. Yeah. <laughs> I think that journey just continues till the day you die. So I really realized it's just all about continuing to understand what my potential is. Um, Sean Akers wrote a book from Harvard called Happiness. Okay. And he had one quote that always stuck with me, and that was, um, joy comes from fulfilling potential. And when I heard that, I thought, well, do you ever stop fulfilling potential? And if you do, do you become unjoyful? Well, I want to find out. So yeah. I'm trying to fulfill every bit of potential I can, which is hard because it means stepping out of your comfort zone all the time. Um, so how, how hard is it to continue to step out of comfort zone, um, later and later in life? You know, it's interesting. It's become easier and easier, I think, because I've become authentic. Yeah. So I think that part's become easier. Um, I'm tired more often. I probably go to bed earlier. (laughs) But it's ultimately, I realize that when I'm constantly learning something, I'm fulfilling that, and I'm, I do feel more joyful. And plus, it's all about really, to me, my two-word purpose is igniting joy. So if I'm not doing that, then I'm not in my zone. Yeah. So, But it, it's very hard. When I accept a speaking engagement sometimes, which I just did one that was 1,834 people. Oh, wow. It was the largest I had ever done. And as I got ready to get up on stage, I said to myself, have you lost your mind? Yeah. Why are you doing this? And then after it was over, I thought, now I know why. Yeah. Now I know why. So it is interesting how when you do push yourself, nothing's going to happen to you. Nobody's yeah. going to eat you. Yeah. <laughs> And if you fail, hey, you learn something. Yeah. So I finally learned that point was if something crosses your path, it's meant to be taken. Yeah. What's That's, the worst that can happen? No, you're right. I have a, um, I have a gym set up in my garage um, and on a little whiteboard in there because my, my 10-year-old son will come out there and work out with me sometimes. Um, and I have a little quote on there that says, failure creates strength because um, he doesn't understand that he's supposed to fail in the workout, yes, right? And he, yes. he comes back tomorrow and now he's stronger than he was today. Right, right. Um, so you're exactly lesson. right. Great yeah. lesson. I mean, that's, that's like right in your face. You can see it. You can feel it. That's yeah. a good one yeah. for a 10-year-old. Well, he's 10, so he doesn't listen to anything I say, but that's okay. We'll get there <laughs> eventually. Remember, trust me. <laughs> um, so some of your backstory is um, obviously it's been talked about before. You're very open and talking about it, yes. um, but um, but it's kind of helped you. It was that first sense of self identity, I think. Yes. Um, so can you walk us, or can you talk through the audience who doesn't know, um, kind of? Um, your um, high school story and how that developed a little bit and then let's take that into how it's created the person not created but um, nurtured the person that you've become sure Um, for me I was um, raised in a family of my father was a military officer and my mother was a stay at home mom and we had the perfect leave it to beaver for those not old enough to know that was the perfect family in the 50s and it was dinner every night at six, and it was just, you know, we were at church three times a week, and it was just this, you know, leave it to beaver family. Yeah. 
and um, I was the chaplain of my school, which was an elected position when you could have that back in 1973. Okay. And um, my brother was two years older, and he was a geeky tech guy. And I was on the principal's committee to give feedback to the school, and I started ninth grade. And um, I was an honor roll student. Everything was going great, but every ninth grade girl wants one thing. They want to get the boy. Yeah. Well, I got the boy. I got Mr. Popular. He was a senior, and he picked me. Yeah. And head over heels, man, I won the lottery. Yeah, of course. Um, by the time I was in my summer between my ninth and tenth grade, I got pregnant. So at that point, I went to my parents, told them, they said, what do you want to do? We want to get married. So we walked down the aisle two weeks later in the white dress in the church I grew up in and all the women through the big reception and my parents had a second home they told the renters they had to move out everybody furnished it we were off into this wonderful life of bliss that was supposed to be I woke up and realized I was in a domestic violence relationship and when I look back on it the signs were all there from dating but I thought it was because he loved me that he didn't want me hanging with this person. Or I thought it, he loved me because he didn't want me to ride the bus to school um, because it was dangerous. Uh, all of those signs of control were there. The physical abuse had not started yet until we actually got married and then the physical began. And it got worse and worse, but I took the blame for it and thought I was gonna fix it. So here I am, I'm 16 years old, I've got a baby. He's off at work every day. I'm at home by myself every day. It got so bad he would take the phone with him to work because I wasn't allowed to speak with anyone while he was gone. So um, the wake-up call came when my um, we were supposed to go on a date night. My parents were going to babysit. It was a Friday night. And at that point, um, he was late coming home. And I'd spent all day getting ready. I mean, what 17-year-old yeah. do want to go hang with your friends, yeah. right? So I had done the whole makeup, the hair, that I was ready, he was late. He walked in the door, he'd been drinking, and um, I'm crying and say, oh, I wanted to go out with my friends. And he says, fine, get in the car. We got in the car, had my eight-month-old in the little carrier, off we go. Get to my parents' house, he takes the carrier out, proceeds to physically beat me and drive off. So I had to go to the door at that point. And when I did, my father took one look at me, didn't say a word, went, turned around, went and got his keys, and I uh, went looking for him. Thank God he didn't find him. My mother was smart enough to realize, now this is on a Friday night, by Saturday noon, I was meeting with a psychologist around what, what I was going through. I went through a week of intense therapy with that psychologist, and they said to me, you uh, are a victim of domestic violence. They didn't even call it that back then. Yeah, I bet. I don't even think they had a name for it. This was 1975. So, um, and they said to me, you have to make a choice. You can be a survivor or you can be a victim. And at that point, they said, go home and decide what you want to be. And I wrote four goals on a piece of paper at 17. I said, I want to finish school because I'd only had a ninth grade education. I want to own my own home by the time I'm 25. I want to start my own business by the time I'm 30. I have no idea where that came from. And I want to marry a knight in shining armor somewhere in there. Well, um, I did go back to school. I sat in the classroom. I finished three years in two years. 
Um, I went to business school to get my secretarial degree of shorthand and typing. Yeah. <laughs> And some basic accounting. Um, I got a great job, and by the time I was 22, I was buying my first home. At 26, I married my husband, uh, Mike Green, who is my partner in business and my partner in life, and we're about to celebrate next month 35 years. That's awesome. And started this business that I'm in now at 29. So I accomplished everything on that list and realized how powerful goal setting was. So, um, But I didn't tell my story. You didn't. I didn't want anybody to know my background. Here I was on the chamber board, but this was like 2003, four. I'm sitting on the chamber board of Charlotte. I've got a successful business. I didn't tell anybody my backstory because I thought they would think less of me. So the big lie was, you know, I'm a successful person. When they asked me where I went to school, I'd say Commonwealth College. Well, Commonwealth College was this little business school. It wasn't VCU. It's yeah. Commonwealth College. But nobody asked. Yeah. They said, oh, you went to Commonwealth College. It's like, yeah, yeah, I did, which I did. Yeah, as a matter so of fact. So it was, it was that big lie of not being authentic <coughs> to yourself. Um, and then in 2006, my really good friend's daughter, who knew my backstory, um, asked me to come speak at her school, Cannon School in Concord. Mm-hmm. Asked me to come talk about healthy relationships because she knew what she wanted to tell the opposite story. Yeah. And I said yes. And then I thought, oh my gosh, what have you done? You're going to go talk in public about yeah. this? So I dialed the local chapter of the domestic violence, which is now Safe Alliance, and said, can somebody go with me? Little did I know, the CEO was the one that came with me of Safe Alliance, which is the largest domestic violence rape crisis in all of Mecklenburg and all surrounding counties. There are over a 100-year-old agency. And she comes with me, and we spoke. And then later we went to lunch, and she said, would you, would you be interested in serving on the board with us? And that's kind of how it got started. And then I became their spokesperson. In 2008, we decided we needed to build a new center. We'd been doing all the studies in 07. 08 hit, the financial crisis happened. We needed to raise $10 million, and we said, we're doing it anyway because the people need it. We were sitting on a 29-bed facility for as large as Charlotte was. Oh, wow. According to the study, we needed about 120 beds. So we were sending people away to hotels. We were telling them they couldn't stay more than 30 days. So we were doing more harm than we were good because we'd give them a little bit of counseling and how to get away. And they had nowhere to go, so they'd end up back in that situation. So we went out to the market. We raised that $10 million. We were one year off of our plan to open, which isn't bad for $10 million in, in a center. Yeah, no, not in the middle of a, of a small little financial crisis. Yeah, yeah. But it just showed me, again, the power of uh, purpose. Yeah. And that was kind of my beginning journey around that power of purpose, too. So it was being authentic that was the big aha moment for me is... These, these things that happen to you in life are gifts and everybody has a story yeah. that's what's amazing everybody has a story and if you really look at that story you'll find the golden nugget to yeah. where you need to be so I've really enjoyed because I have women come up to me everywhere I speak and men and say I watched my mother go through it I went through it one in four women go through that and it's amazing how you don't talk about it so I feel like I unleash people to be able to tell that story and when they do they help so many other people it is amazing it um, your um, how you've come through that story 
found your voice and everything else is um, it's an awesome example to other people that sit on that voice. Yes. Um, and the tough thing is, is so many people sit on it um, and they don't connect with that authenticity right. Right. that you talked about, right? I mean, right. you um, you drove the success as a result of it for many years, yes. and it wasn't. I mean, you were almost freed in what 2005, 2006 yes. when you when you found that authentic voice of yours yes. that almost probably propelled you further and faster Absolutely. than anything else had at that point in time. Absolutely it did. It really was, uh, it unleashed a lot. It helped me really understand who I was as a leader too, because when you become authentic, you also lead differently. Yeah. So the journey again, you know, I mean, I've been in business 32 years and I can say I still have a long way to go to learn and I love learning every day. So it's uh, it's a journey, and you gotta hang in there. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> but to go back, so yeah. you're 17 years old. Yeah. Um, you have you know obviously a horrible situation that you're getting ready to walk behind, um, walk away from. Um, but to sit down and create 22. 25, wait, no, 25, 30, right? It was 25 um, and 30. Yeah, 20, so buy house, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> So, um, but that was back before, like, goal setting was really big. Um, I even that, had a vision board. They yeah. didn't call it a vision board. Yeah. I had a little tack board that I'd put a picture of a house on. Yeah. had all these things that I wanted. The yeah. Mustang was one of them. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Um, so, um, had that drive always been there too? No, no, no absolutely. It just not. came out kind it of as a result. Came, I think it was when he, when that it, it was, a, it was a guy that I was having as a psychologist, and I remember him saying, "You have to make a choice." And I'm thinking, "Oh, I have a choice." Yeah. Hmm, what does that choice look like? And then he said, "Write goals on a piece of paper." It was kind of obvious to me. Um, I, 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 I don't know whether that. It was always in me, yeah. and it came out because of this sooner than maybe it would have. I don't know because I don't. I just know what I experienced. Yeah. So, a lot of people say, "Do you think you were born with that?" And I said, "I think it's both." Yeah. Um. So that's a. Um. So you go back to school. Yeah. Um. Three years and two. Yeah. Um. You go into you. Uh, you go into college, Commonwealth. Yeah. 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 Um, it was a nine-month program. Yeah. To learn short dance. So. <laughs> Um, which you probably use more today than you did back then as far as trying to figure stuff out, right? Right. Um, but, um, and then you start your own, um, no, you buy a house at 25. You start a business, um, buy a house at 22. You start a yeah. business at 29. Yeah. Um, when did the business idea come to you? So in uh, 85, when I was 26, I married Mike. You mean 2015? Oh, yeah, 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 just, yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, thank you. I needed that. Yeah, yeah. So, a lot of people were yeah. born until after, after eighty-five, right? Yeah. So we moved to California. Okay. My my uh, Mike was a um, nuclear health physics uh, consultant, and he was stationed in Southern California. So we moved, picked up the house, and moved. And um, we got out there, and at the time, I had gone back to work for the school that I had graduated from as an admissions. That's how I was able to buy my house. Okay. So the director said, how would you like to come back and sell the education part of this? 
and I said, oh my gosh, I'd love to, because I knew I would help other people like myself get a leg up that couldn't go to four-year school. So I took that school from 60 students to 600 students in four years, and that's how I bought my house. Okay. So then we go out to California and end up going to work for um, a big chain, National Education Corporation, and I became a director of one of their schools there. Um, and after a couple of years of doing that, I said, I want to change. So I said, I think I want to help people get jobs. What I love about the school part is it gets them training, but I even love even more that we placed 98%. So I want to go into that. So I started researching that. And uh, a little free paper hit our driveway one day in uh, San Juan Capistrano that talked about remedy staffing wanting to franchise. And I remember sitting down with my husband saying, this would be a great business. We help people get jobs. It's something you can grow. It's something you can sell someday. All, it had all the makings of a good business, and it fit within that need to help people. So we bought the franchise, first franchise they ever sold. And we came back to Virginia, because that's where I was from, moved back into the little townhouse that I had bought as a as a single person yeah. and started the business. So you kept the townhouse, rented it out, yes. and so you okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah. So you, um, you were always an entrepreneur, you just didn't realize probably, it, yeah. Probably, yeah. my grandfather was, so yeah. maybe that's where yeah. it comes from. <laughs> but his was bars and pool halls, a little different, yeah. but. <laughs> it's okay, everybody needs to play pool too. That's right, that's yeah. right. So um, ultimately, it was that was the beginning. Um, I can't say I saw myself as the leader even then, in fact, um, my husband was the CEO, I was the president, and I supported everything he did. And uh, when we left the franchise, it was 2001, 9-11 had hit, mm-hmm. we lost half our business overnight. The franchise was supposed to be buying us back, and I was going to go off and do my calling. Because somewhere along the way, the messaging was, you can't have money and do your calling. Yeah. Because money was evil. Yeah. These were all these messages from the South that we got. Yeah. You know, upbringing church, everything. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it was like, oh, i got to sell this, so i got enough to live on, and I can go off and do this calling. I didn't know what the calling was. I just knew I had to have one. Yeah. Because I've been told I had to have one. It was right? going to come. It right. was going to come. Yeah. I had to have one. So I think that's when you when you run really hard against um, the universe. <laughs> You keep getting hit with two by fours. Well, I'm, I'm a slow learner, I think, so I got hit several times between 2001 and 2002. Our franchise agreement ended in April of 2002. With September 9-11 hitting, we lost half of our business. So here we were doing $15 million and we were down to seven overnight because it was manufacturing. Yeah. It was gone. Yeah. So here we were sitting on nothing to really sell, and yet that's what we were supposed to be doing in our heads. And the aha moment was we hired a consulting group to come in and kind of help us decide how we want to take this thing out to the market ourselves. We didn't have a non-compete. We were a true franchise. We were the first they ever sold. We were lucky enough to have a good uh, attorney negotiate that. Yeah. So we literally could take our sign down at midnight and put put their, take theirs down and put ours up. Oh. So we made the decision to do that. And um, it was a journey at that point. And the consultant said, you know, I he and my husband called me in and said, would you meet us for coffee? And I said, sure. Well, at this point, my daughter's like five years old. I'm being the mom. I'm working part-time. Okay, yeah. I'm thinking this is my life, and I'm supposed to be doing this. And they sat me down, and they said, we really need you to lead the business. And I said, I can't do that. And they said, why? And I said, because it'll ruin my marriage. 
that was the other message I've gotten. Yeah, of, of course. The male is the head of the asshole, and I'm supporting him, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And I said, if I do that, I'm afraid our marriage will fail. He's looking at me going, I'm asking yeah. <laughs> Because they had seen, this consultant had seen my profile and said, you are really, you have this voice that needs to be, and it, it is your need to help these people. You need to do that. Well, I can tell you that in itself has been a journey because I took many years to really embrace that I was to be this leader of this organization. And I'm still growing in that. I would say I really found that voice just five years ago to where I really began to say, hey, you know what? I think I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still learning, but yeah. I think I can do this. People have been tapping you on the shoulder for 25 years telling yes. you, yeah. Yes, and it is amazing how you don't listen to what the universe is saying a lot of times. I think it's messaging that we get yeah. along the way that I'm not supposed to do that. My mother told me I was too bossy. Okay. And I needed to be quieter. Yeah. So I look back on that and I think, well, that was my gift, and yeah. yet I was told not to do it. So yeah. all of those things kind of play into how do you break that mold of what that teacher said to you or that parent said to you or your friends that pushed you down a path. How do you break that? And um, I think it's just, first of all, being intentional about really wanting to know who you are. Yeah. And then go down the path to try to figure that out. So where in Virginia were you at this point in time? In uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Okay, Norfolk, Virginia. Yes. Um, not Charlotte, North Carolina. No. So how do we end up moving across? So, okay, the franchise, we were first to franchises. Yeah. And it uh, took them a year to sell the second one. Okay. And as they sold, a couple of them came up for sale. And we didn't feel like we had a big enough territory at that time. So the Remedy franchise that we had was just for that Tidewater area. Mm -hmm. um, so there were two franchises for sale at that time, one in D.C. and one in Charlotte. Well, my mother grew up here. I grew up coming here to my aunt's house my entire life. So we decided Charlotte was the second territory we were going to buy, and that was 1990. Okay. So we bought that second territory. We didn't have any intention of moving here. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, a broker came to us and said, someone wants to buy your franchise in, in Virginia. And we sat down and said, you know, it's a smart move because Charlotte is such a much better um, metropolitan area for us in business. So um, we decided to say yes to the broker and come to find out it was my first boss ever that has, was seeking out behind the broker to okay. buy it. So, he bought it, we moved here, and ran it from 1990 to 2002 when our franchise agreement ended. Okay. At that point, we had to decide what we wanted to be when we grew up. Yeah. And we were doing uh, about $19 million at the time, and it was like, okay, well, let's go national. <laughs> yeah. well, how do you do that? I've never done that before. Yeah. So, um, again, through a consultant that we had hired, and I think everybody needs those people in, in their life from time to time. When you're struggling, that's when you reach for the help, right? Um, and you can't be proud not to do that. So I've had several of those that really helped turn the steering wheel in the right direction. So we did hire a, um, a gentleman in 2009 um, to be our COO. And he had taken two companies public. He was tired of the, um, it was not good culture. A lot of times at taking those companies public and he really wanted to be with a value-based organization that had true values and they wanted to grow. 
and uh, so we hired him. He's been with us for 11 years now, and the first thing he came into us is says, "Well, have you thought about trucking?" what? <laughs> so we started Road Dog Drivers and then we started um, Stratamed which was a um, medical staffing. Then we started Genius Pool which was scientific. And okay. so we've had multiple niches that we played in. Some made it, some didn't. Yeah. And, um, so those were all separate businesses. All separate niches okay. within staffing. Okay. Yeah. So um, with that we continue to find our voice and continue to go down that path to where today we're at my work choice. So we exited everything either through a sale or a shutdown because it wasn't working. So I know what failure is in business and I've experienced it more than three times. I think the average is three, like I said, I think I'm slow. So. Okay. But been able to keep the same platform, yeah. been able to go and learn from that. So it's exciting where yeah. we are now. Yeah. Well, I mean, um those failures were nothing more than experimentations to get you to where you ended up needing to be, right? It's, it's that whole push out your potential. So what if you fail? Yeah. You're going to learn something. Yeah. It's just not wallowing in it and move on. Don't be the victim. Yeah. Be the survivor and never settle. Yeah. One of our core values is never settle. Okay. Um, that's interesting that you just went right back to that don't be the victim be the survivor yes. talking about failure right yes. Yes. Um, that's all it is that's all it is um, uh, it's uh so much of the decisions along the way are mental. Yes. Um, and if you can just frame it in a way that you can get over the hurdle, yes. you're now mentally prepared to go tackle it. Yes. Um, and you've taken that from all along the way and just created success. Yeah. And, and I'm sure I'll have more. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, bring it on. Yeah. Okay, I know what to do with it. Now. Yeah. Um, I hope for the area you do. <laughs> Right, because that means that you continue to innovate and do cool right. things. Um, so, um, just talk about my work choice for a little while. Sure. Oh, that's um, so exciting! So good. So, um, you just closed the capital round. Yes. Um, so, was that the first time you'd raised money? Oh no. No, it wasn't. Okay. No. Um, um, only one other time. Okay. Um, tried to create a marketplace for truck drivers okay. and raised $10 million on okay. that one, um, but we were hitting a wall with the 1099 issue. Okay. So Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, the whole California drivers. thing. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so that, that changed <coughs> on that model. But um, this one is more growth capital, um, okay. not startup. I mean, this is my same business I've had for 32 years. It's just a hugely different spin with innovation and technology. Okay. So, um, how much money did you end up raising? Three million. Okay. Um, how long did it take you to raise three million? One call. One call. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. My, my, C, That's funny. my CAO says yeah. to me, we're talking. He raised yeah. money many times. Yeah. And we're sitting down talking. He goes, well, let's plan on, you know, we're going to need 20 calls to yeah. get this money, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I said, no, one call. Yeah. And he goes, all right, you're on. Yeah. One call. Closed. Yeah, that's awesome. We'll, we'll bleed that out for the startups so that they don't hear it. Um, but what is the most difficult? So you've raised money in the past. Yes. Uh, what's the most difficult thing about it? I don't think it's difficult at all raising money. If you believe in what you're doing and you know you have something worthy to raise money on, yeah. I don't think it's, I think it's, I enjoy the process actually because I get to meet people and the more I tell my story, the more innovation comes out. It's amazing. It's like when you go sell it, you, you learn something every time you sell it. And when you go raise money, you learn something every yeah. time you pitch it. So 
your pit, your first pitch to your hundredth pitch is going to be way different. Yeah. But it's that you got to put yourself out there again. You got to be willing to fail. Yeah. And it, it, the pitching part is actually can be fun. And even the people that said no, I still keep up with people. Yeah. So it's it's phenomenal. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what um. So you've now raised $3 million. Yes. Uh, you closed at the beginning of the year. Yes. Um, what's next? Well, growing the company. Yeah. We're having, we're having um, so much opportunity from the concept to reality to now we're hitting contracts, huge contracts. So it's really to build on the technology that we have. So we're taking it to 2.0, and it's building a marketing machine that keeps giving. So those two things. Up until this point, it's been word of mouth, two salespeople trying to figure that out. Now we're going digital with B2B. We needed money to do that. We needed money to take technology to 2.0. So really, it was hiring talent to help us get to that area to really launch that sales machine. Because we have two sides of the sales. We have to recruit. And yeah. we have to sell to the client. So we have two sides for the B2B and the B2C. Uh, so a lot of the money is going to go really help us dive deep into a lot of um, digital uh, world, which is foreign to me. I mean, I, I was going to say, how much? Fascinated yeah. by it. So I, I read everything I can get my hands on because yeah. I'm very. We launched out our very first LinkedIn ad at noon last Friday, and within four minutes, we got our first huge lead. Are you serious? I cannot believe it. But it's a message that's resonating yeah. with so many manufacturing, distribution, and call centers because of the unemployment rate. They can't get uh, people, and we can. And it's they're like, how are you doing this? Yeah. And once we explain what we're doing, they're going, oh my gosh, that's like so elementary, so it makes so much sense. Why isn't everybody doing it? I said, I don't know, but don't tell everybody. Yeah. Until <laughs> I get my direction. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> Um, so, um, how, um, how, so you've been involved in the employment industry for 32 32 years. Um, what's the future Mm. that you're driving to, right? Yeah. Or what do you see that I don't see sitting in my little office down in South Charlotte, right? I think the biggest, and I'll tell how the concept came about because that kind of tells what's happening with the workforce, but we, um, had a area uh, company that we have a thousand contingent workers at. So when we provide people, we do them in large volume for manufacturing, distribution, call centers, wherever you have large groups of hourly workers. We're going to recruit for those positions. We're going to have HR people there because they're my employees. Okay. I'm just lending them to the company okay. for that period of time. Well, up until probably five years ago, you would run ads and you would hire people on the basis of being hired by the client. So if XYZ has a thousand employees and 400 contingent workers, they're going to use that pool to draw from every time they have a turnover. So they use it kind of as a stepping stone to get on permanently. Well, that wasn't working anymore. First of all, the turnover was so high, you couldn't even get them to the point where they would go perm. Absenteeism was at an all-time high. I think it's an epidemic now. So we started really studying this, and where we had a thousand people, the clock broke. (laughs) We had to do it by hand. Gosh. So we're tallying timesheets, and the realization is we didn't have a thousand people there. We had eighteen hundred people there. 
what happens is, is this department orders 50 people, then the next day this department orders 50 people, and you're just pushing people in to fill slots. You don't even realize how many are there, and the average hours was only like 28 per person. Oh, wow. And we went, wait a minute, these people are pretty much working when they want to work. Why not just give it to them? So we studied it a little bit more, and we took it to one of our larger clients in manufacturing and said, they had 400 people at the time, and we said, we would like to buy an off-the-shelf scheduler, take these people that are working here, and let them choose their own shifts. And they said, have you lost your mind? And I said, no, and I'll tell you why. We've studied Uber, we've studied Lyft, we've studied all of these gig economy successful places and decided that the reason they're successful is because it gives flexibility to that workforce that's never had flexibility. Now, we're not going to make them 1099s, we're going to keep them W-2s and we're going to make sure they're pre-trained and production ready for your facility. So it's not like I'm going to bring some stranger off the street and put them in your yeah. site. So I'm going to hire twice as many people as you need and I'm going to pre-train them, I'm going to have them production ready, I'm going to background check them, I'm going to have everything done, and then I'm going to push the schedules out. I'm even going to get creative and break some of those schedules into four-hour shifts because I know the reason we can't fill second shift is because of the way those hours gap in the middle of the day. There's some people that can do the first four hours and some that can do the second, but it's hard to find somebody to do all eight. Yeah. So they said, okay, you're on. Within three months, we were at a 97% show rate every day, and we had eliminated absenteeism, and we had not one hour of overtime. And we went, we're on to something. So we started building the technology ourselves, and that was two and a half years ago. Okay. So we built it, we tested it, we've been in small markets, large markets, we've been in LA, we've been in Greenwood, Indiana, we've been in uh, Mission, Texas, we've been in Dallas, Texas, we've been in, so everywhere we've gone with this message, it works. We can recruit three to one on the numbers of people. If I put out a tip to perm job, which is the old way of saying, hey, here's a great job, you'll have full benefits when you come on, I get 300 people. I go, I got flex work, you can choose your shift, I get 1,200 people. The market is dictating what they want, and what they want is flexibility. They can work a full 40 if they want to. Yeah. They can work four hours if they want to. So we're able to come in and really customize shifts based on the client needs and fill every shift. You got a truck that showed up and you got 70, you don't even have 70, you have 48 hours to put 72 more people in place. I push out that shift, it's filled within minutes. It's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Then all of a sudden, I'm a worker, my child is sick. Well, in a traditional sense, if I was going to work and I had three strikes within a 90-day period, I'm fired. A great worker because of absenteeism. Well, life happens. Yeah. The shifts were created by Henry Ford to fill a day to build cars with all men. Yeah. And we still do that? What's wrong with us? We haven't changed the way we hire and expect people to work. We expect you to show up 40 hours a week and mandatory overtime and have a life? Well, you cut out half of the population that could be working and give you great ROI 
because you're not willing to allow flexibility. So we make flexibility work. <coughs> and production's gone up, absenteeism goes away, overtime goes away, and they're happy to be there. Workers pump, hardly any accidents. That's crazy. It's insane. Yeah. People will hurt themselves just so they can stay out and live <laughs> their life. Yeah. You know, it doesn't happen in our world. And we build communities to that client, but they can also join other communities in the same city. So they can have a choice of three different companies to look at shifts once they've been approved and gone through the training. It's amazing. It's just, it's turning the world of hourly workforce on its head and bringing dignity back to that worker and adding huge value and productivity to the client. From one little time clock that broke, huh. we got the message. It's amazing. It's just paying attention to innovation and what people want. And everybody just has always thought about doing the same thing they've always done. Yeah. And you get the same result. We're in a 3.5% unemployment rate. You look at the jobs created over the last four months, about 205,000 jobs per month average. 74% of those came from sideline workers. That's in the federal report. Yeah. What is a sideline worker? It's the 11 million people that aren't currently working for, looking for a job. They're yeah. not on the unemployment register. But guess what? They'll take a flex job and a heartbeat, and they're unbelievable employees. They're retirees, they're students, they're moms. They're people that want full-time. We have a full-time shift for them if that's what they want. Yeah. If they want to go to work for the client, we don't stop them. They can go any minute at any time, and those clients are always pushing out openings for them. Not many take it. What does that tell you? In one community, we had 750 workers, and the client said, we'd like to put out a permanent offer to your flex workers. One person stepped up and took it. Within three months, they were back to flex. Wow. Companies are using it as an exit barrier. So when, when they have a pre-trained person that's been with them for years, but they're starting to miss a lot, they'll offer them to go to flex, and they don't lose them. Wow. Because they keep, they keep working. Yep. So now they keep that talent, but they're letting them work flex. They can come back anytime they want. Yeah but they choose to go flex. So it's it's um, it's an eye-opener and it works and it, it's so exciting because my whole reason is to ignite joy, number one, but to help people get jobs and to bring dignity back to a workforce that hasn't had any white collars have flexibility forever. Yeah. Why not the hourly workers? Why, why shouldn't they have that opportunity? We do it in our own call center. It's so successful, I can't tell you. I mean, we tested our own grounds by putting it in place in our call center, yeah. and it works. That's cool. It is cool. So, technology. Yes. Um, how was it building out the application? Oh my gosh, if I have to learn one more tip, I'm going to scream. No, it's been uh, a journey for me Yeah. Um, because I didn't understand all that. I've got a great team around me. Uh, Dual Boot, Boot is our partner Okay. It helps us. And um, I have an internal products person, and my CAO is also very, very involved. Um, so um, let's shift gears for a second because we're two thirds away into it. Okay. Um, Betsy, Betsy, it'll be. Yes. Um, she was episodes 38 and 39, oh, I think, okay. of the podcast. Yes. Um, and she mentioned, gosh, that was two years ago, oh, I think. Oh, wow. What a 
impact you'd had on her as an advisor and mentor to her. Um, How do you approach those relationships, those advisor-mentor relationships where you're working with other entrepreneurs um, to move up the chain of command, so to speak? You know, it's interesting that um, I've always... I've never done it in a, um, a, a strategic way. Yeah. It's kind of like I'm open to help whoever, and people will send me people. Uh, I guess it's because I've said to the universe, send me people, I'll gladly help. And Dave Jones mm-hmm. of... Um, um, and, yeah. yeah, I know you're talking about. Oh, my gosh. I can't remember <coughs> the name of it. It'll hear me. Um, suggested that she contact me as a fellow female entrepreneur and we would just get together for lunch or we she would call me if she had questions I've had so many people along the way that do that I don't seek them out they seek me out and um, it's been phenomenal I will give wherever anybody calls I'll gladly answer questions um, I've had people suggest people that I I've never met before, but I talk to them on the phone all the time where somebody connected me to yeah. them. Um, so it's it's kind of that thing where I'm intentional, but without strategy, and it does happen. I'm in Women Presidents Organization also, which is um, a group of entrepreneurial women that you have to be doing at least a million in sales to be a member of. Okay. And they go all the way up to trillions of dollars of sales. And these women get together as your advisory board. So you mentor each other. And I have to say that that group uh, has encouraged me and been beside me all the way. Because I'll see somebody else doing $300 million and I'll go, well, if she can do it, I can do it. Yeah. And I'll call her on the phone and say, give me advice. And that's what this group does. So it's kind of its own internal mentoring board of advisor other women in business. Yeah. Not to say that I don't have, I've had many of uh, men that have been my mentors along the way. This group works for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, so now you've mentioned them along the way already in, the, in, in our you know, short little 45 minutes together, right? Yes. Um, so, um, 2016, you were named by Monster as one of the best places to work? Yes. Um, how cool my was that? Monster, that was so cool. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, you don't think, you go about doing your job. Yeah. And you think you're doing your best, but you don't know until somebody tells you. So to have our employees participate in that and we win because of that yeah. through Monster, yeah. that was really cool. So, um,. Can you, as you build out this uh, my work choice, um, can you? How do you continue to deliver that experience as you grow? Um, with my employees. Yeah. Oh, I I love Strength Finders. Okay. Have you ever taken Strength? I've finders? done just about all of them. Oh, I yeah. think. Yeah. So it comes out with your top five strengths. Yeah. And that's the one of the things that really has helped me grow as a leader is to understand what my strengths are and how to put them into play. So I took it first in 2009. Okay. And then I realized this is something that could help every employee that we have. So when they come on board, they take the strength finder and then they schedule a call with me and we go through a 30-minute process of helping them understand how that plays into their life, both personally and business-wise. Because to me, if you can connect the dots between your purpose and what you do every day, 
is what makes you a better person in your personal and your business life. Because uh, connecting all, it's you can't separate business from personal. And a lot of people think, well, this is my business world and this is my personal world, but it, it all is one. So how do I understand what my true gifts are and how do I put those into play every day in my life? So I try to spend 30 minutes with every person. Now we're working on bringing in some workshops to do it as a team. But I think my biggest aha moment in that was I can have, like my number one is connectedness. Your number one could be connectedness, but depending on the other four that follow, your description of connectedness would be totally different than mine. So when I started studying this, it's like one in 300 million people will have your same five strengths. So just letting people know you're so unique in this that studying what they are, and that's another thing that helped me overcome all those messages from childhood and growing up because the one thing that my five tell me is that I am a very outspoken strong leader the one thing my mother told me was you're too bossy you need to be quiet so understanding a lot of times we'll push those talents to the side because we were told not to use those so I think understanding those and tying that all together and then our core values are the most critical thing to me is that everybody understand what they are but it's not that they understand and can recite them but that they can connect a personal story to each one I mean one of them's never settled because what I never settled yeah. right where in your life did you never settle one of the other ones is see the awesomeness in others and when I told my mother I was pregnant at 15 I did not know what to expect so I started off the conversation by saying you won't love me anymore and she says oh yes I will why don't you tell me I already know and I said I think I'm pregnant she says yes I think you are too (laughs) and she proceeded to say I was afraid I was going to be too old to be a grandmother and I'm thrilled that I'm going to get my grandchild now she was 51 at the time okay you know that's not what she was thinking. <laughs> but she saw the awesomeness in me and gave me permission to be in the moment that I was in. Yeah. So that's my story that goes with, see, well, everybody should be able to connect a story to that core value. And I think that helps them live those core values because it becomes a reality of what we do every day. And it's not just some word that I came up with as a leader to say these are our core values. It's their core values. Yeah. And how does it how does it play into their world? So I think those two things help build a culture of people that play together well, work together well, and support each other. No, you're right. Um, you've created success um, in ways that most people probably never will um okay so i mean you know you're authentic um you've driven a successful business you pulled yourself out of difficult places you've done a lot of things that people talk about and aren't able for whatever reason to execute on um what's the hardest part of creating that well, and to push yourself out there. I think that's the fear of failure causes people not to do it. I think truly it is about being willing to be vulnerable, and you have to be humble, and you have to be willing to push yourself out there, and you're going to stumble, and you're going to fall. 
But I think if you don't do it, you'll regret it. Yeah. No, you're right. And then you'll constantly look at the other person that does and say, I wonder why I couldn't do it. And and everybody's goals aren't the same. I mean, mine is truly to affect as many people in my life as I can with igniting joy and helping them get jobs as they can. Well, that has resulted in a business that now has 10,000 employees. Yeah. But it, I mean, that may not be somebody else's goal. And their goal may be to be the best mom they can possibly be and the family is the most important thing and that's just as honorable as building a, a business yeah. probably more so so I think that it's it's individual and it's deciding what is that thing for you and then just doing it the best you can yeah 10,000 10,000 yeah. employees yeah I think we'll be 20,000 this year we're what, growing that fast um, <laughs> what is that um what does that sound like when you say it out loud? Or the first time you said it, what did it sound like? Did you did you have to stop yourself and say, what in the world is going on around me? Or I don't know. Maybe not because I've always been able to. I'm a futurist, so yeah. I, I do dream big. So, no, I guess to me it's just, okay, we can affect 200 more. Oh, we got the chance to do 200 more. And it just it's compounded on itself to the point where I hope we have 100,000. Yeah. So, um, what, um, so seven businesses, um, what's the, what's the education process for CEO to get where you are, right? I mean, so we'll go back and again, 1985, you start doing consulting, um, not consulting, you buy your franchise, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to now 10,000 um, uh, employees going on 15 to 20 as we go through the year this year. Um, what's your, um, what's that path like, right? How do you, like I was watching Jeff Bezos last night, his thing on PBS, um, and watching old school Jeff Bezos versus today, yeah. and you can just clearly see a different person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's it like to, to live that? What's that path been like? I think the, the biggest part of that path is knowing what you're not good at and finding somebody who is. And then the second part of that is building enough trust in that inner circle and knowing that you have to change out inner circle members. I think one of the biggest uh, aha moments, Doug Tatum wrote a book called No Man's Land. Okay. He owns Newport Board Group. And he came and spoke to my WPO group. Um, and he talked about getting, the no man's land is that trying to break 50 million. And it applies to all different levels. But when you're small underneath that level, you probably got to the close level with inner circle people that may not have the talent to go to the next level. And the hardest thing I think for a leader to do is to assess their inner circle and say, this is not going to get me there, or maybe I'm the one that's in the way. And what do I need to do to get out of the way? So it's being able to make the assessment of that group, because loyalty doesn't always take you to the next level. It doesn't mean that you don't take care of them in some way. But if you don't continually assess the talent that has to be to take your business to the next level, you will not get to the next level. 
The other big aha moment was you have to spend money to make money. I think a lot of people get to a profitability point and they don't want to give that up. (laughs) They created a lifestyle or whatever at that point and they don't realize that in order to go that next level, I'm going to have to hire somebody that's a hundred thousand more than what I've got this person doing. And I'm going to have to give up something to get there. And I think when I realized that, that there were, that was when the floodgates really opened. It was like, wow, okay, so I have to do this. Um, I used to dread any time I had to change an employee out. And someone once said to me, but Tana, what if they're not on the right path? And you're releasing them to the right path. And all of a sudden I realized when somebody's not in their sweet spot, they're just as miserable as you are. Yeah. And ultimately, I can tell you that a big majority of people that I've had to release have come back to me and said, thank you. I learned so much, but I needed to move to this next level. So I think that's the hardest part about growing as a CEO is really assessing where you are and what you need to do to get to the next level. Uh, and it, it's hard. It's very hard to make those decisions. Some people would rather stay where they are, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that either. Yeah. Hey, I'm making a good living. I want to stay there. Not all people want to grow to a hundred million dollars. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. Um, so 2005, you had a five-year-old daughter. Is that right? She was well. Let's see, 2000, I had a five-year-old daughter. Okay. Um, so that makes her 25 now. 24, almost 25. Okay, close and enough. Engaged. Yeah. Awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. What's, um, how does she see mom? That's funny, yeah, because I have my son is, will be 45. Yeah. And then I have my daughter will be 25. So it's 20 years apart. And um, when I really went through my authenticity phase where I really became who I was, my daughter said to me, she goes, I don't know that I like who you're becoming. I mean, she was very outward about it. She's bossy, too. Yeah, she's very bossy. <laughs> picked up on that. Um, and I think my, my son was recognizing it. My husband was recognizing it. I mean, now they see what I went through to get there, and they're very proud, and they'll say that. But I had to stretch some some wings there, and I don't know that I was – I mean, I was changing as a person, and that's hard for your family to see that. So it's, it's, it's very difficult when you become authentic. You do lose friends, you do change people because you're different, and accepting that is hard too. Um, my family's come along with me, thank goodness. Yeah, very true. <laughs> and they helped me along the way, but they did notice that I was yeah. changing. You shed an outer layer along the way, right? Definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, so as we kind of come up on the close of our hour, amazing yeah. that it's been an hour already. I know, it's fast. What? Very fast. I know, this, I used to do 30 minutes, and yeah. I barely say hello, and 30 minutes is yeah. over with. Um, where are you in 10 years? Wow, I don't want to say my age, but it'll be up there. Oh, okay. Where's my word choice in 10 years? Yeah. 10 years from now, I want to be telling the story uh, to help other people. I want to be able to, I'll probably, I've written one book, Mm -hmm. Leading World of Difference, and I'll probably have written my second or third by then. Ultimately, just to continue to spread the word of um, how you get there. And what life is all about. I mean, if I can share some of these experiences, I will have left a legacy. Absolutely. Um, you've already left a legacy. <laughs> Thanks. So you'll just leave a bigger one, right? Okay. Yeah.
So, anyways, well, it's been fantastic. Um, I've really enjoyed. Um, if people can, uh, myworkchoice.com, is that Absolutely. what it is? Um, and you're out there on, um, obviously, you're out there on LinkedIn. Oh, yes. Um, so, anyways. LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it. It's, yeah. it's going on. Whatever those social media sites are, we got a presence, right? That's right. So, anyways, well, thanks so much for um, being on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your story. And thanks for being a part of the Charlotte Entrepreneurial Ecosystem. Thanks what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks so much. representative of Portis Wealth Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Registration does not imply a certain level of skill or training. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Portis Wealth Advisors. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Portis Wealth Advisors does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interest may be offered only to persons who qualified as accredited investors under applicable state and federal regulation or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interest. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in the market conditions and interest rates and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.